Welcome to our Have Faith segment. Our special guest today is David Seidenberg, who is a rabbi, an author, a, I think, intellectual uh, is fair description. He's a non, not a pulpit rabbi, um, doesn't have a congregation, um, and yet uh, your rabbinical studies, I know, because of your writing and because you've been with us before, are of enormous importance to you. I'd like to know what the teaching, what the study of becoming a rabbi has meant to you in terms of your understanding of the world and your place in it. That's an interesting approach to that. Uh, what's, what is my rabbinical studies? You mean all of it or my education to become a rabbi? Well, I, I was more interested in actually specifically in the education to become a rabbi. Yeah, uh, that's... A, and, that's and, then we're, and we should tell what we're going to... We're going to be talking about the Israel-Hamas war in about two minutes, but I really would like people to understand where you come from on this. Yeah. Uh, going to rabbinical <coughs> school is a way of kind of refining your mind so that it's in tune with the history of Judaism and its traditions... And I would say that from a traditional perspective, the training of becoming a rabbi is so that you can look at all the past in order to figure out how the future can go best. And that's in terms of rituals, it's in terms of ethics and politics, it's in terms of how to build community in the right way and how to lead community. Why become a rabbi to... to, to get to those kinds of understandings? What was the motivation? And I say this in part because I do remember a conversation my mother had with me when I was about, I don't know, shortly after my bar mitzvah. And she said, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, oh, there's this, there's that, this place center field for the New York Yankees. I mean, there are a few things that I'm interested in. Um, and she said, you should become a rabbi. And in so many worlds, I said, mom, my Hebrew is mediocre at very best. And the idea of becoming a rabbi is a zero interest um, because I just wouldn't be really good spending all that time studying books um, and studying what people had to say about life. That's just not for me. But there's a contemplative aspect of being a rabbi, of having that knowledge, of being able to study texts that I think changes a person's perspective. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or not, but I've known a number of rabbis over many years, yeah. and I, that's a common denominator. Beneath whatever their contemporary uh, uh, and, and or political writ large perspective, there's an understanding that comes through, and I think that informs their perspective. Yeah, you have to have a love of learning to really get to being a rabbi. Once you're in a pulpit, a lot of people don't have time for that, actually. They're so busy with their people. Um, but you asked me about becoming a rabbi, and uh, even when I got to rabbinical school, I had no desire to be a rabbi. You mean to be a, a rabbi, a, 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 pulp, a pulpit rabbi? No, even just the title, I was not interested in it. Really? Yeah, I, I actually... You were in rabbinical school, and the first thing you had to say was, I don't really want to be here? I mean, it's not a great Well, I wanted story, to be yeah. there to learn, but, but honestly, um, I, I kind of got my... Judaism, so to speak, in the Jewish renewal and Chavara movement, where there's, it's particularly in the Chavara movement, um, which I can explain if you want, there's a kind of an ethos that, that it's about everyone learning together, and there's not like one person who should know more than everyone else. And I really believe in that kind of ideology. So the idea that I should become the person who's the repository of knowledge to give to, to people in this kind of dispensary way uh, did not appeal to me. 
Yeah, but I was doing so many things that rabbis do anyway in my life, leading high holiday services, creating high holiday services, all the learning I was doing, uh, getting involved from a particularly Jewish pro um, perspective uh, in protests and political activism, that it just kind of made sense. I might as well get the title because it's kind of what I'm doing anyway. There's an interesting aspect of uh, the position of rabbi in Judaism, which is distinctly different than the position of priest or, uh, for example, or a reverend uh, in uh, Christian traditions. And that is that a rabbi is not an agent of God. A rabbi, the translation is teacher. And I'm wondering how you could help us understand the difference in leadership responsibilities. And I'm not asking for a comparative religion test, but as a teacher, you still have responsibilities. Rabbi means teacher. You do. I don't know that that difference is a difference on paper. And obviously it's a difference when you have things like priests who are supposed to be celibate and, and live a different kind of life. It's actually celibacy is, is not literally, but in, in practical sense, forbidden in Judaism. Not, it's never seen as a, something to try to achieve or strive for. So that kind of thing is very different. There's not this idea that a rabbi should be, should be or is holier than anyone else. But when, when push comes to shove in the actual real world, it's not that different. You, if you have spiritual leadership, people look up to you. Maybe they don't use that particular language that you were using for priests and reverends. But, but um, you still hold a certain kind of leadership where, what is the word? Um, I'm not going to remember it right now. But there's a certain kind of model you present, that an, an ideal, even if you don't want to. So you have to be careful about how you treat people, n not just because you want to be nice, but because you want to be, uh, you want to help them. God, this is actually a complicated subject when I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, and we'll we'll and we will sort it out. I would like to get to the topic we really want to talk to you about, which is yeah. the uh, Israel-Hamas war, yeah. uh, which, which I was going to say we have lived with, but the people living in Gaza and Israel have now lived with for a long time. And in order to have some, to help share your perspective, I'd like to have your big picture analysis of where that war stands now and what is you th what you think would and should happen. It's funny to ask me that since I have zero control over any of that. So, but it seems to me that... I disagree. Uh, yeah. No, no, I, I disagree. I don't mean you personally, but in fact, I think public, opi public opinion and organizing and the demands for ceasefire and peace now, I think, has a real effect. It has an effect on Biden. It has an effect on Netanyahu. It, it will make a difference, I think. Anyway. It might affect Rio's policy, so you're right about that. Um, a just cause doesn't always make a just war is the big problem. How do you conduct a just war? Israel is in a no-win situation in terms of the difficulty of conducting a war in that environment. And the death toll is among Gazans is well past unbearable at this point. So what one should be doing, I've never been in a military or run a military. I've never fought in a war or studied war, right? But... Um, it seems to me that 
the cost the cost has become too grave, even if the cause was so so uh, seemingly just from the beginning. The the here is what what is driving me driving me nuts. And I was watching the news last night, and I started screaming at my television because there's Netanyahu saying, "We will only stop when we have total victory." Total victory. Netanyahu what? is um, despicable in so many ways, and I hope I don't get in too much trouble for saying that with somebody out there in the audience, but he's a, he's a crook who's used the whole Israeli political system to, for, to stay in power. Like, that seems to be his only goal. And he's completely untrustworthy in terms of his decisions and his honesty about his decisions. So, for example, this whole idea that we're going to fight the war because there are still hostages there, it's, it's not exactly a logical way to bring hostages home is to just fight a war where you're going to smash and demolish everything. And cause people who are on the other side to hate you, detest you, and think you are vile and have no... Well, that's a whole other level. Is it a, is it a political strategy that has any long-term use? It has short-term use, but long-term... You can't get to peace from here. But if it could force the issue where Israel has to make a Palestinian state, um, that will have to have Netanyahu out of office in order for that to happen, then that at least uh, would give some meaning to this meaningless carnage of people. We are speaking with Rabbi David Seidenberg. More with him and the Israel and Hamas war after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this Half Faith segment, we are speaking with Rabbi David Seidenberg, who is the author of Kabbalah and Ecology. And during our time off air, Buzz, you had raised, I think, a really important question and issue with David. So I leave it to you to bring our listeners in on that conversation, please. Thanks, Bill. Rabbi David Seidenberg, we, um, we have all experienced, much to our chagrin, a rise in hate. In particular, we're talking about anti-Semitism right now. And there seems to be a conflation in people who, well, some of whom are anti-Semites, but between Israel and being Jewish. That somehow, if you're Jewish, you are somehow complicit in what Israel is doing. Um, as a learned rabbi... What's your, and an author, what are you, what, what, uh, how does that strike you? What do you have to say about that? Well, look, anti-Semitism likes to make all the Jews one big target and use Israel as an excuse for that. And yet there's an absolute need to be critical of what Israel does, particularly in the occupation in the West Bank. So it's, co- it's complicated, like most things are complicated. But uh, j- the Jewish people are not... Uh, shackled to a particular position on Israel. And in my generation, you had to come at whatever position you wanted to come at 
without saying you were against Israel, but the youngest generation that's now very politically active, for them, it's almost as if you have to say you're anti-Israel in order to be part of the process of politics. So it's very complicated in that way. But what's true is that th there's no monolithic Jewish community. There are, there are some, there's some uh, unity of vision within certain generations, but not, not across the board and not, not in my generation. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, you are the creator of Neo Hasidry. Neo Hasid. W what is that? That's my website that teaches um, Nigunim, that is Jewish spiritual music from the old world, like Europe. And right, it includes feminist and ecological literature and what we call eco Torah, Torah about ecology, the earth, this kind of thing. And also whatever else I feel like throwing up there. But generally, it's, a, it's an educational site. And it's part of, I think, your commitment, your long-term political commitment to justice, uh, which you describe as having predated your uh, studying to be a, m a member of, of the rabbinate. Uh, what is it that can be done, in your view, that will tease out this uh, su support or non-support of Israel for blaming the Jews for everything Israel does? You've thought about this you've written about this, what needs to be done? Because it is this enormous unfairness, and yet Israel in some ways precipitates that issue, that problem. Well, one thing in the last thing you said that is of concern to me is that a lot of people in the younger Jew Jewish generation that are anti-Zionist want to blame anti-Semitism on Israel. And that's just not accurate. And that's wrong. Right? And that's a problem to think that way. Uh, on the other hand, what was the other hand? I had another hand in my hand and it went away. <laughs> I don't remember what the other hand was anymore. Well, I, but, but to, to the core of the issue, yeah. with Israel being a Jewish state, and it is not illogical for at least some people to say, uh, you are representing Jews, all Jews. And I, I feel... Uh, Israel uses that perspective to keep uh, um, American Jewry and world Jewry kind of connected to it. And that has meaning and it also has manipulation. So it, it's, there's a good side and a, ver and a bad side to, to those things. Um, I, don't, I don't know and I don't have an idea about how to change anti-Semitism out there. What I care about is finding ways to be an ally to the Jewish people in my politics, an ally to people who are vulnerable in my politics, and an ally to the Jewish state becoming a, a place that, is, that does represent justice, that will eventually, God willing, represent justice, not now. And maybe, God willing, there will be a two-state solution and that peace could come out of this horrifying conflict between Hamas and Israel at this time. Yes. You have any hope in 15 seconds? <laughs> Sometimes I have a little hope. Sometimes I have a little hope. I try. Rabbi David Seidenberg, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your perspective. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you.